Hi, and welcome back to Apology, a podcast about books and reading. I'm Jesse Pearson, the founder and editor of Apology Magazine. Today's guest is the writer Dennis Cooper. He's a writer who's got a really long and varied bibliography that goes from fiction to nonfiction to poetry, but he always maintains a really recognizable voice. I feel like there's a world that his writing takes place in that's not quite ours, runs kind of parallel to our world. And I believe that unlike a lot of writers, he qualifies at this point for adjective status. I think you can call something Cooperian or Cooperian or however you would pronounce it, and people who've read his work will immediately know what you mean. Dennis's work includes uh, a lot of sexual violence, disaffection or lack of affect among the characters, and references to music, like lots of indie rock and Britpop. He's probably most well-known now for what's called the George Miles Cycle, which consists of the books Closer, Frisk, Try, Guide, and Period. Um, And they are all in their own ways inspired by his childhood friend and later briefly his boyfriend, George Miles, um, who was a tragic figure who committed suicide later in life. Dennis has made his obsessive thought about Miles, I think, into one of the most unique group of books ever written, um, and they're all in his signature prose style, which is clear and diamond sharp. His most recent book is I Wished, which uh, is a very moving capstone to the Miles cycle. It's not technically a part of it. Uh, it's more personal, and it does more emotional work than the previous books. That's in my opinion. It's fanciful in parts, though. A crater and a head wound are both speaking characters in it, but it's also very naked in its approach. It's a great book and you don't need to have read The Miles Cycle to get into it. Though honestly, I would advise reading all five of them anyway. It's, it's a really important body of work. I'd also check out his essay collection, Smothered in Hugs, if you want to get started on Dennis Cooper, too. So yeah, let's get into it. Here is Dennis Cooper on The Apology Podcast. So what are you reading right now? Um... I'm actually reading um, uh, a couple of things that I'm, haven't been published yet. So people send me books to looking for blurbs quite a lot, and um, and the only things I'm actually reading now are these. There's two books I have for blurbs. I don't know if, if you want to know what they are. They're not out yet. Um, if they're going to come out and you enjoy them, yeah, I'd like to hear about them. Um, what is this novel called? X. By someone named Davy Davis, uh, I guess Catapult is publishing it, and um, it's. Uh, I, I'm not so far into it. It's um, kind of an apocalyptic novel set in New York, and there's all these people in like sadism and I mean, you know, drugs and sex. You know, I get a lot of those books. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> I was going to ask. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's actually very, very, very good. Um, the prose is. I, I, I usually don't like. I don't like, I usually don't read for content. I don't really care what the content is. And it, if a book like has content that's interesting and then that's like a bonus or something, but I, I really just read for prose, for the prose of the style, the structure and all that kind of stuff. Cause that's what kind of gets me off. So, uh, but I mean, having that stuff in there, you know, electrifies it a bit, but anyway, it's very, very well written. So yeah, it's, it's good. And then I'm reading this other book. Uh, do you know who Pierre Clementi is? No, I don't think I do. He's a French actor and filmmaker. He's best known for, I think the movie he's most known for is Belle de Jour. The, oh, sure. Yeah. 
And he's in, but he's in like, you know, Pasolini's Pigsty and he's in The Conformist by Baralucci and a lot, a lot of films. Anyway, right. he's, he's like one of my heroes. He's um, kind of this unbelievably daring actor. It was mostly in the 60s and 70s. And he also made these extremely strange and psychedelic experimental films that I like very much. And uh, he wrote this, he was arrested in the 60s for possession of LSD and he was in prison for a while. And he wrote this journal, kind of manifesto slash journal while he was in prison. And it's been, I've been wanting to read it for decades, and it's finally being published in the United States uh, in English. So I'm actually reading that because um, they want me to say something about it. So um, that's pretty exciting because he's, he's really like a super, like, he's like uh, the kind of person that would be like, should be a hero to anybody who wants to make art, like just completely uncompromising guy. Yeah, so those are the two books that I'm actually looking at at the moment. That journal sounds really great. It is. It's very. He's not a great writer, but he's real. He's, he's. It's very interesting, and he's describing the prison and being prison, but also just you know basically pontificating about you know about the importance of being you know unique and original and right and that kind of stuff. I tend to like um, prison memoirs. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of like the Ballad of Reading Jail by Oscar Wilde or um, Genet. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Um, it's really true. And this this one's really short, too, which is good. That's always good. He wasn't in there very long. <laughs> it was just LSD, I'm, so. Oh, in America now, if you get busted with that, you're in jail for the rest of your life, pretty much. Uh, well, yeah, this was France in the 60s, so I guess they were slightly less intense. Right, right, yeah. right. Well, thinking about you blurbing books, I actually just read um, Castle Faggot. Oh, I love that Which, book. yeah, you blurbed it as, the, what, like the greatest novel ever written. <laughs> <laughs> well, well they, they pulled that out of the conversation that I had with Zach Farley at the end of it, and I was being a little bit, you know, kind of comedic there. But it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it is, I mean, when I was reading it, I thought, this is like the greatest novel ever, you know, everybody should just quit, and there's nobody should yeah. write a novel again. I do love that book. Yeah, it's super, it's super visionary. I've never read anything like it. It was like exhilarating, the prose. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's great. He's great. Could you, would, would you be able to tell me a little bit of the, like the 101 on that book for our listeners? Well, it's, um, ostensibly it's a, it's like a novel that's set in, it's in Paris and it's set inside sort of a brothel, but it's also sort of a gift store and, and a, I don't know, kind of a strange haunted house amusement, amusement attraction or something. And, um, yeah, it's basically just that, and it's like it, it's not at all linear. It's 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 almost like the writing is like the architecture. It's like architecture or something. It's yeah. extremely 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 funny and um, and very um, outrageous and um, and uh, filthy. And yeah, quite quite scatological. Very scatological. It's just kind of like this. It's it's like an experience or something. It's like you know, and and then it goes, and then it's back at the end of it's like the same thing backwards it's like it's really i i mean i'm just always i'm dazzled by people who try to do something really innovative with prose and and derek is like derek's been a great writer i mean i love all of his books but this is really knocking it out of the park it's really yeah just like a singular thing i'm gonna go back and read some of his style this is the first book by him that i've read and i loved it and has count chocula as a main character yes 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 he (laughs) yeah There's, I found that there was a kind of anger to it too. Did you feel oh, yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No. Super. Extremely. Like it's. Yeah. No. That's, that's very, very true. And he's not ever written that way before. I, I mean, he doesn't. If you know him, he's like this super docile, sweet guy, and you wouldn't think he's angry. But, 
but yeah, it is really angry. And I think it was written at a time he had, he had like really bad, um, health and almost died. And I think, and he's fine now, as far as I know, but I think that that kind of, I don't know. I think that was, it was such a tough thing. He was really in a a lot of pain and stuff for a long time. So I think think that kicked the um, the anger up, but it is, it is, it is very, it is really angry, but, but never not hilarious. So. Yeah. Even when he's invoking suicide, there's something funny about it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I really recommend anybody who wants to read some new experimental fiction. Castle Faggot is the book for you, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Another book that I read, a, a kind of on your recommendation, just recently. Actually, I'm st- I'm about three quarters of the way through it, and I don't know whether to be thankful or angry at you for having me read this book. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. But it's uh it's Hog by Samuel Delaney. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that that might be the most extreme book in English ever written. Yeah, I think it really is. Could you give us the brief on that too? Well, that's Samuel Delaney, who's like best known for writing like, you know, this kind of um, um, kind of I mean, he's, he's best known for um, this book Dahlgren. And and he's written a lot of science fiction. And it's it's very it's a very um, it's very stylish and very kind of innovative science fiction. But this is just like uh, I mean, it's like this kid um, who ends up with this trucker and it's and they just go drive around in this truck and. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot of eat, shit, each shit eating, like a lot. Yeah, yes, a lot. Um, it's 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 a tough one, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's just it's like really terse and really simple in a certain way, almost like a pulp novel. But um, yeah, it's just it's so extreme. I mean, I just you know, I mean, there are people who are extreme, like Peter Sotos and stuff. But this is really up there with um, with with you know, I mean, challenging. Um, yeah. Content. Yeah. This kind of makes Peter Sotos feel like Michael Shabon or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Peter would like die if he said, heard you say that. I hope he doesn't yeah. um, I was just wondering as I read it, what do you think? Do you have any sort of speculation as to like what a writer gets out of writing something like that? Is it just an id expulsion kind of a thing? Or Well, I mean, he's a smart guy, Samuel Delaney. So I, I, I'm sure he was very aware that like, um, that, I mean, that to work with that material and in, 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 in a literary way, I'm sure he was very aware that what he was doing and uh, how extreme it was and stuff. So, but I mean, I guess there's always some kind of id and in writing about that kind of stuff. I mean, obviously there was, there's a kind of sexual charge to it. I mean, it's written almost pornographically at times yeah. um, about, you know, you know, all, all this fecal sex and things. So I think there have to be, otherwise it wouldn't work. I mean, it wouldn't, you can't manufacture that. I think you have to, I think you would have to know what it feels like to be libidinally, libidinally um, aroused by something like that. Cause it certainly conveys that. It's almost a, con- a confessional of like of fantasies. Yeah, no, it has a it, it has a kind of pulp porn novel quality to it. But it's it, it, but at the same time, it's 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 much better written and well structured than than something that's just tossed up without you know a masturbation going on in the background. Yeah, I think that's what is keeping me going. I mean, that yeah. and just wanting to see what Hog is going to do next. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I don't know if this is too personal, but I was also wondering if you do you get turned on when you're writing sex scenes? Oh, it depends. Um, usually not. Um, 
because I'm always really thinking about like the effect and stuff, and and uh-huh, right. and also, I mean, I've been writing about explicit sex for a really, really, really long time, and um, and I kind of have a sense of how it works and doesn't work. So it's not really. I think maybe when I was younger, I was playing, more, I was using more of my my own like desires and things to to make decisions, but I think um, not really. I mean. I can't remember being particularly aroused or something when I, when I wrote, um, because you're focused on the, on the craft of it. Yeah. Because I mean, I just like sort of, I mean, the way I write is I just kind of like explode stuff out and then I spend, you know, two years editing and refining it. So when I, when I, so, um, it's such, it's such a laborious process and it's so complicated that it's, it's not like, you know, I write a book, you know, in one burst. It's like, it's, it's, it's kind of layering. It's this very layered process for me, you know? So most of the time I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm just like trying to think of how to make the prose interesting. How, how different are your first drafts from what you put out? Extremely. Yeah. Cause your sentences, you're, you're, it, they're so, they're so honed. I feel yeah, I work really hard on them. I mean, I, I have a kind of natural writing speaking voice that I use, and then I I don't take it away from that, but I but I I definitely go I complicate it and I you know and I prettify it or I you know work with the rhythm make the rhythm more interesting you know more deliberately interesting or something than it may be when when I talk or something. But yeah, it's, they're super chiseled. I mean, I, I work really hard on the prose. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it's possible to write good sentences but bad books? Sure, there's. I mean, most books are. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, that whole literary fiction. You know, I, I'm so completely uninterested in literary fiction. You know. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Like, who? Like, who? Who? Like today, who? Who would we be thinking of when we say that? Oh, I don't know. There's so many of them. Just whatever I mean, the New York Times bestseller list is. Yeah, that kind of that kind of thing. I mean. Yeah, except that I mean, yeah, except most of the New York Times bestseller list isn't even literary, but but it's um, yeah, just like schooled. It's just like it's just like beautiful sentences and felicitous, you know, prose and and uh, I don't know, just so crafted and and but there's it just feels really dead to me or something. I don't. There's just no fire in it or something. I mean, I, I mean, I love yeah. stuff that's just. I love just stuff that's just purely prose and experimental. I mean, I like novels that aren't about anything that are just these kind of crazy constructions, but even there, there's this kind of, there's this kind of drive or something or kind of obsession or something you feel in the work. But, but with this kind of literary fiction, it's just like, in a way it's the same old thing, like, you know, kind of a calculated story. That's like, you know, got a little bit of love in it and a little bit of loss in it and a little bit of this and that. And then it's just like so beautifully written. Oh, beautiful sentences, you know. It's that kind of stuff. It's just like the kind of literary equivalent of like the voice. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, people who you win like, you know, American Idol. It's like, <laughs> right. you know, it's like, who ca- you know, or Lady Gaga. It's like, oh, Lady Gaga can sing. Who cares? You know, I mean, it's, yeah. I, it's that kind of thing. It's like people really like that now. They're just, it seems like there's a very big fondness for, for people who prove that, they're, um, you know, it's like such a good singer. I mean, I just, you know, or such a good guitar player. That's so good. You know, I, I just don't, I'm not interested in that. So this is reminding me of an essay you wrote. I think, I think in the nineties, we're talking about how the, the, the sort of fortunes of experimental fiction kind of rise and fall and it goes in and out of vogue. Uh, where, where do you think we are right now in the state of experimental fiction? 
Oh, I think you're in a really good place. I think it's like, this is like, I mean, I, 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 mean, I guess I said this a bunch of times, but I, I feel like it's a super, it's like a total renaissance now. It has been for about the last, maybe, I don't know, eight years or something in the United in the United States, especially because there's all these, these, there's so many of these really, really, really good smaller presses and, the, and they're publishing these writers that would never have gotten published by the major presses because their stuff is way too inventive. And, and there's just so many, I just read, you know, I read a lot and I'm just reading so many books by newer writers, especially that are just, you know, crazy. I mean, I mean, it wasn't there, but when I was younger, you know, it was really like, there were a few small presses like New Directions or City Lights or something. Right. But generally, you had to be published by a major press, or you know, I mean, it's like that was if you didn't, you were kind of a loser or something. But now that's not true at all. I mean, now it doesn't matter anymore. I mean, it, it, you you can publish with you know some some small press that's you know that's in wherever Indiana or something, and it's just as it's just as valuable as to publish with you know whatever Harper Collins or something. Right. Could you name check? I mean, if you think about the a couple of recent novels that have been really, um, really stood out for you. Oh, that's so hard because I, I like so many. You read a lot, huh? Yeah, yeah. I just did this thing on my blog um, this last weekend of like where I picked my favorite books of the year, and there's a bunch in there. Maybe people could go to my blog and look at the ones the one for yes for the weekend this last weekend because okay. there's a whole. But there's a whole bunch of I, I put my favorite books of the year. There's a ton in there, but it's like hard when I start to think about it. I mean, I mean, there's this Maggie Siebert wrote this really good book called Bonding, and um, oh yeah, I've heard what I, I I've wanted to read her, but I haven't yet. It's very good, very very good. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's some there's a lot. There's a lot. Well, for people listening in the future, that would be Dennis's blog from around what, like December 11th or 12th, Yeah, yeah, the week, the week. Yeah, it's like the 11th and 12th. How how much time do you spend reading? Like, what are your daily reading habits like? Uh, I read quite a lot. I mean, um, I don't really have hab- I don't I don't really have habits for anything except for that when I do my blog. It's you know I have to I have to do that because I, I talk to everybody every day, so I have to do that in the mornings every day. But generally, it's just like I just have this. I have a really I have a lot of energy, and I have a, and it's really scattered. So. I just kind of am all over the place, like, oh, I want to write a little bit now. Now I'll make a blog post. Now I want to go read something for a while. Now I want to go watch, look at stuff on YouTube. And it's, so it's just, it just happens, you know, I just, just have books here and I just pick them up and I'll read for an hour and then I'll put it aside and do something else or I'll pick up a different book. Yeah. So I'm just reading all the time. And, and um, I'm not someone who necessarily feels, because I don't care about plot and story and stuff like that very much. I don't really necessarily feel like I have to read the entire book. I'll read like 40 or 50 pages of it and go like, okay, I get it. I mean, it's like, I, I, right. I this is really good. And I, it doesn't matter what happens in the story. And I get and the pros. I, I'm taken enough with the pros and I'm excited enough about it, about it that, I, that, that I think I got what I needed from this. That feels really liberating to like not read for plot. I feel like we're kind of enslaved by it. Like, I think it would be hard for me to, to let go of that. I guess so. I've never been like that. I've always read experimental fiction since I first started reading. I mean, well, since I was a teenager, I just that's I went straight in, you know, went because um, I was just reading like junk. I was just reading like novelizations of TV shows when I was a kid because I didn't right. really care. And then I discovered like you know Rambo and Baudelaire and Genet and all that stuff when I was fifteen. And then I I kind of like I, ever since then I've just mostly read stuff that to one degree or another is 
experiment or whether it's like, you know, the kind of European kind or whether it's like metafiction or whatever. It's like, so I don't, I've never, I've never read for plot. And so it's very foreign to me. I mean, no, I just read the Joey Williams novel, which I loved. She's probably my favorite writer and that has a plot in it. And, you know, and I'm interested by the plot, but, but I feel like the plot is just kind of like fuel to keep the reader. It's like forward momentum. Yeah. Right. That's, that's, that's the new one. What's that called? Yeah, it's called Harrow. It's very if you if you like her, I love her writing so much. And I do too. It, I do too. Yeah, it's it's very good. But yeah, I don't know about the plot thing. It's like you actually recently you had C. A. Conrad on there on your yeah. show, and and he was talking. He was doing this whole rag against the novel and stuff. And I thought really general. I mean, I think he's a very good poet, but but uh, he was really generalizing because he was making it seem like that's what novels were. It's like stories and plots and stuff. And I just I was like, I don't think so at all. I mean, I never read books like that. Yeah. I, I think maybe they were using that as like shorthand for for the kind of literary novel you're talking about. I would hope so. I was just, you know, you mentioned your early reading, um, you know, Rimbaud and, and Baudelaire and people like that. I know that the Marquis de Sade was important for you, too. And I'm really kind of interested in him because he's one of those writers that there's kind of just a cliched take on him, that he's just like the perv or something like that. All right, all right. And like, what is what's the what's the value of reading him? And if somebody wants to get started, what should they what should they read first? Well, it's really hard for me to speak of it, about that in a kind of general or non-personal way because, um, I mean, to me it was like because I had was a sort of sort of tormented person with a with a with a you know like weird scary imagination. So when I read him, I read 120 Days of Sodom, which is basically where I would recommend everybody start. It was just like this. It was so legitimizing. It was like Christ. Not only does someone like talk aloud about this. But they, you know, they write about it, but it's like serious literature, right? Because, you know, it was published by Grove Press and, it, you know, there were essays by, you know, Simone de Beauvoir and stuff in there. And it was like, right. this, you know, so to me, that was super liberating because it's like, oh, I can I can actually try to write about this stuff. And it's not, you know, it's not, I'm not a freak or whatever. I think that, I think that for people who find that material, you know, and, you know, and, and not most, most people obviously do not. I think it's very liberating in that sense. I mean, he's a, he's a hell of a, I mean, I've only read, read the translations, but I mean, the prose is hilarious. It's like so Baroque and complicated. I love the prose. It's so, I mean, I mean, I have, yeah. to, sk- I have to skim it. It's like, you know, he's so fucking verbose, you know, <laughs> you know man, I can't believe anybody actually reads those all the way through without skimming like huge sections of them. Cause he just goes on and on and on and on and on. Yeah. It's quite heavy. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's just that. It's just, it's liberating. I think it's liberating to realize, like, if you read that, that, you know, anything is legitimate for, for, as a subject for literature, you know, basically that's what it tells you. Right. Did your, did your parents pay attention to your reading habits when you were a teenager? Like, were they like, oh my God, my kid's reading Desaad? Well, I didn't, <laughs> they didn't, <laughs> they, they didn't know. I mean, I didn't know. <laughs> no, but I mean, that was 15 by then, and I was doing a lot of drugs, and I was like running around with my friends. And I think by then they had basically given up on me, is you know whatever. So, so, um, and before before then, I I did I only read you know like the Man from Uncle novels or the you know I, right. the, the Batman novels. I didn't read anything. I mean, my parents did not like. I read Mad Magazine. I was addicted to Mad Magazine when I was a little kid, and they, they yeah. didn't like that. They thought that was too very very subversive, and I shouldn't read Mad Magazine, but. <laughs> but no they didn't really know i didn't i mean i'm not really i wasn't really close with my family so i was just you know i just uh i i just read privately and you know stuck them under the bed or hid them in the back of my drawer or something yeah were were your parents readers no 
we had this house and there was like this library and it was full of books. Like this whole room was full of books, but every, almost every single book was like these, I don't know if they still make them readers digest condensed, whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 They just went to a, you know, some kind of yards, giant yard sale and bought a bunch of things that looked like books and put them in there. And there was like, they never took a single book out of the shelves. I know they didn't read. They didn't uh, that's read it so at all. strange. I have a friend who I won't name here who just recently, this still happens. He bought books by the yard to just kind of fill up yeah. the shelving in his house. Yeah, that was that's that was it. I mean, they wanted the spines to look kind of nice. I guess that was the only. So no paperbacks. It was all all you know hard. Right. <laughs> talking about like you know reading uh sod early on and and rambo they there's it's pretty like you said it can be pretty complex kind of like thick florid prose but your style is so like we said so sort of concise and clear are there writers that like got you started on finding your style you know the, the distinction i'm making yes yes um yeah it's a good question um i you know i i a lot of I've been influenced a lot by things that aren't books. I've been really influenced a lot by films and and um, music and stuff. And um, you know, I mean, so there. I think I think I think like in terms of the style, I don't. I can't think of a writer that I can't think of a writer model for my style actually, which is kind of strange. But I mean, I but I can think of like maybe like songwriters or maybe in you know, I mean, punk was was very. Had yeah. a big impact on me, and, yeah. Um, and you know, I mean, uh, when I was first writing, like when I was writing closer, I was like, I, I always like studied music and try to figure out how to try to how they get that effect in music. And and when I was writing closer, I was like paying a lot of attention to like Psycho Candy by Jesus and Mary Chain, especially, and thinking like, how can I get that effect? Like super super simple, kind of enigmatic prose, you know, whatever lyrics, and then this kind of noise. You know how how does that work in prose? Can you make the can you make the prose make yeah. this kind of caterwauling quality and then put these really simple things in? So it was, it was probably more than that. And then of course there's this filmmaker Robert Bresson. He was like a huge influence on me. His stuff's very 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 complicated, but very very simple. So, but I I can't think of a I like I like really simple prose. You know I can think of things yeah. I read later after I, you know the, the novels I read much later that you know, but I can't think of anybody. Um, I mean, you know, no, I mean, you know, the story of the eye is very simple and um, Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So there were things here and there, I think. Story of the eye by Georges Bataille for people who don't know, which is another pretty transgressive, pretty sexual, right. pretty incredible book. That's really interesting because I, I, I don't think I've heard you say that about the Jesus and Mary Chainer music before, but like that's what you did. You nailed that. That that really makes yeah. a lot of sense. Thanks. You know, I mean, I, I, I think of music as being like the most forward art. It's like, it's like, they're, they're always like really, it's all, it's always really, if you pay attention to the outer reaches of it, like the people that are really pushing the boundaries, it's really, it's so far ahead of like books and film and even visual art, yeah. I think, you know, because there's just, it's just space, you know, that's what it's so great. It's just this space and you can fill this space with anything. And all you need is, all you need is like, um, you know, it's like for me, if somebody who doesn't like content, that's what's great about music is this music is just structure. It's just like, you know, textures and 
effects and things structured in such a way that gets you excited and stuff. So, and Jesus and yeah. Mary Chain was was great at that time. That one record was great because it was because it was it was so um, angsty and stuff, and so but it was so dense and. So, but I mean, with all my books, I do that. I have a name check the, them, and um, you know, like when I was writing, I wrote this novel, Try, and. Uh, yeah. And in in the book, there's this kind of it's the book is kind of a battle between the Husker Du and Slayer because I was really <laughs> I was really fascinated by both of them and and um and so that happens in the book. There's this kid who likes Slayer and there's the kid who likes Husker Du. And then when I wrote this book, Guide, that was really about this kind of thing in me because I was a super indie rock kid and I was really really especially into lo-fi. I was like a huge yeah. kid into lo-fi. But at that point, I started listening to all this electronic early rave music. You know, like apex twin and orbital and orb and all that stuff right and I was so taken with it so it was just kind of like oh how do i reconcile these two things and so music is always really really influential on me was it guide it makes sense i guess based on the title but i can't remember was it guide that had a lot of guided by voices in it too yeah i mean i you know they're my I, i'm a huge i'm in robert pollard's kind of my living god so and I, I i i was and i had just discovered guided by voices and so i was extremely in love with them yeah yeah, yeah. They're, they're in there. Pavement and Sebado. It's that whole kind of era that I, I, I love that music. So Robert Pollard is a great poet. Yep, he is indeed. Do you have a favorite lyricist? Would it be him or are there other people that you think of? I think probably him. I mean, um, you know, in a different, in a completely different kind of way, it's kind of a weird person to bring up, but I actually think Randy Newman is like a really amazing lyricist. I think that his early stuff is just kind of phenomenally profound and, Mart and you know i guess I, but but you know pollard is so inventive and so he's just so knowing and inventive all the time that that, that he i guess he's my favorite yeah and so prolific yeah <laughs> that's for sure I mean, it's quite a lot <laughs> it, it's really i mean i'm a hardcore and it's just like and they release stuff every you know he or god everybody voices release stuff like every month and a half it's like almost impossible yeah. to keep up there's a book of his poems, too, that's really good. I think it's probably pretty hard to find, but maybe you've seen it. It's called, I think it's called Eat, E-A-T. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a magazine, actually. Yeah. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. I just have one. I guess I just have one issue then, because I thought it was a book, like a standalone thing. No, there's like 80 of them now, <laughs> of course. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. I guess part of your story that I'm interested in also, you mentioned we've talked about punk a little bit, but you moved to London, right? To kind of be a punk rocker in like the seventies. And like I just visited, I didn't live there. I don't know. I just, I just went there to check it out. I went there with a friend in 76 uh, or five. I can't remember. Okay. Um, and, and we just went there to basically, cause we heard that the punk thing was happening there. And so we went just to kind of investigate it, but I, I was only there a few months, a couple of months. What do you remember from when you were around that age? What What were you reading? I was reading. Let's see. That age, I was I was reading um, early cyberpunk writers. I was kind of into them, especially mm. William Gibson. And I was reading. Uh, I was reading uh, Peter Hanke. I, I was like into him, and I was reading Andre Gide. And uh, I don't remember. I mean, I've always read so much, so I, I can't remember who I was into at that time. But I was reading all the time when I was on. Vacation, probably a lot of French stuff. I mean, I'm a huge francophile, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you live there. Yeah, that happened. What about um, fanzines? Is that is that kind of the time when you first found interest in fanzines, or were there earlier things before the punk era? Oh, there wasn't really anything before that. I mean, there must have been, like, Monster Magazine, you know, things for, like, science fiction and you know, kind of nerds and stuff. Right. 
but I wasn't really, no, it was like the punk. And then, you know, there was this whole queer punk thing that happened for a while. And there was like a huge number of zines that were made during that kind of era. And that was really exciting. That was like kind of the heyday of the zine. And there was, you know, these magazines that, um, uh, I can't remember. There was one magazine that was like, it listed all of them and you'd get it every month and you could order all oh, those um, Fact Sheet 5? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I was like super, I was really obsessed with zines. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and then, of course, the internet kind of, kind of killed that. But yeah. There's, <laughs> but there's cool websites. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. A lot of kids started making zines again in like the 2010s, but I found that they were less focused on writing and more focused on imagery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense, right? Which I don't, I prefer writing, writing heavy zines myself. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a, there, are like, there are a lot of like websites that publish, you know, that I guess you have to go to them to go to them to find it's they're like zines, you know, like, uh, you know, like, um, self fuck and 11, and expat and scab. There's quite a number of ones that are very good. X-ray. I don't know. I don't know any of those. Yeah. They're all like, they publish. They're basically like, you know, they, they, I mean, I guess they're like zines. I mean, they just publish new writing all the time, you know, on their sites. So, and, and, and I just keep, I keep an eye on them. Real yeah. pants. This one called Real Pants. <laughs> That's a good name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I guess that talking about zines makes me think about Little Caesar, the the magazine fanzine that you made, which is like pretty legendary, man. I'm sure that you you know that, but like that's that's kind of like a holy grail for zine collectors. Yeah, well, yeah, no, I wish I'd kept a bunch of them so I could make some money because they are kind of valuable now. Um, <laughs> but I don't really hardly have any. Yeah, no, that was, um, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that was in the, the late 70s through like 83. Yeah, it was super great. And it, it was just a really good time, too. And 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 I don't know what, but, you know, I could, and the thing that was cool about it was that I could, um, I could publish like young writers my age. And, um, and, and then I could also like, I could write to, you know, Andy Warhol and say, Hey, do you want to give me something for my zine? And he would, you know, or Lou Reed. I published like this Lou Reed poem that had never been published before because I just wrote to Lou Reed and I'm like, Hey, can I have a poem? Yeah. No, yeah, like, sure. Yeah. Cause they, but they, cause they thought it was such a spunky little project that they were like, sure, sure kid. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to have all kinds of stuff. It was really, it ended up being really in a multimedia or something. Cause it was like all over the place. It was, it was really fun. Yeah. I, I mean, I keep wanting to, reprint it you know we've talked about it many times so people have asked me many times about doing a facsimile and i really want to do it but the rights the problem is that the rights are insane i mean it's like and there's all these people like you know andy warhol and lou reed and nico and so many people who are now dead and it's like to get the rights to that stuff to reprint it i don't even know it would be so much yeah so much that'd be pretty nightmarish and i i'm sure that like pulling out the people whose rights you couldn't get would leave it it just wouldn't be the same thing yeah I mean, I, what I could do is just scan it and put it on a website or something. I don't think anybody would care then. Yeah, there are scans out there. I mean, I think on yeah. on your site there's some scans, but I found you can find them kind of floating around too. Yeah, it was fun. It was super fun to do. It was great. Is is it accurate to call it? I've seen it described as like a punk poetry thing. Do you think does that does that ring true to you? Yeah, it started out that way. it was definitely because I went I went to England and we and 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 looked at you know saw all these bands and wandered around and there was like all these punk zines at that time, like sniff and glue and these other ones. And I was super excited by them. And, and they, th- those did, ex- those did inspire me to start one. And I got this, you know, and I got this whole idea of like poetry should be as popular as, you know, whatever. 
is rock and roll. And so that was kind of my goal was to write kind of like, I'm going to make, I'm going to publish this magazine and show everybody how cool poetry is. And it's going to be like, <laughs> you know, cause you know, I was like, there's Richard Hell and all those people, Patty Smith and stuff. And they were like poets. Right. So I thought, you know, come on. This is like, and so the idea was, yeah, to sort of like make poetry cool. And, and it kind of worked in a small way. I think it did. Absolutely. Well, well, there was Little Caesar Press, and then there was the Beyond Baroque scene where you were kind of the director of a reading series. And there's this kind of like second life for you beyond being a writer of being kind of like an editor slash facilitator for other writers. There's the imprint, right? Little Little House on the Bowery that you... Right, right. Is that still going? No. no. When I moved to... I mean, I still live in Los Angeles too, but I'm, I'm really always here. Um I no because I couldn't. This little house, I love Little House in the Bowery. It was great, and Johnny Temple was great to let me do it, and Akashic, and but it's like, but it was really hands on. I mean, like I would tour with the, you know, them and do readings with them, and I was like really, really involved in getting the books out and getting. And when I moved over here, I couldn't do it. I didn't want to do it in a half-assed way because I couldn't put, devote the kind of time to right. it. And so I just thought, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this in a half-assed way. I'm just gonna stop. So. Well, it's a lot of work being an editor also. It is, but I mean, Akashic took care of a lot of it. So I mostly just had to edit the book, choose the books and edit them. And then they would pretty much take care of everything else. But I, I just personally wanted to really support them by, you know, like going on tours with the writers and doing interviews right. with them and stuff. Just right. felt, felt like I just didn't want to, I just felt it was impossible. Especially since a lot of them, a lot of them were like really young writers and new writers and they didn't have any, they couldn't naturally, you know, get people interested in what they were doing. And also that was before this whole indie publishing boom, you know, like when I did little house in the Bowery, it was like, there wasn't really hard. There were not very many, very small presses doing that kind of thing. Yeah. And one of, one of the reasons why I felt okay quitting too, is because by then there were so many good presses doing basically what little house in the Bowery were doing that I didn't really feel it was such a necessity. I don't want to ask you to choose favorites, but like what, what's a book from Little House on the Bowery that kind of comes to mind first, like a good introduction to what you were doing with the series? I'm, I'm going to choose um, Headless by Benjamin Weissman because it's, it's a great book and he hasn't published anything in like forever since then. And nobody really reads those books. And he's a really, really fantastic, hilarious writer. So I would, I would say if you can get Headless by Benjamin Weissman, I what's go, it like? What's it like? What's like? What's it? Is it about something, or is it? Is it? Is it a content-free book? It's, it's stories. Um, he's really he's he's it's it's very um, kind of outrageous and very 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 funny. Um, and his prose is just hilarious. I don't know. It's hard to describe. I mean, uh, he's really singular. He also had a book out earlier than that called Dear Dead Person that Serpent's Tale put out. That's an excellent book too. And I think yeah. he's finally finishing like 30 years later, he's finishing a new book, but, but just because I think he's so good and I don't think people really think about him at the moment, I would, that's why I would go with that. But I mean, I'm really proud of like all the books I publish. So yeah, sure. His titles are so good. Dear dead person. Yeah. Yeah. He's very funny. He's super funny. Yeah, he's super funny. Was he part of the Beyond Baroque scene, or is he? Was he? Yeah, not a. Yeah, he was. So, can you kind of like give me the basics on Beyond Baroque for people who don't know? And it's a. It was existed before you, but I don't know if it existed yeah. after you. But like, what what was it? No, it's still going. It's still going really strong, actually. Oh, cool! I didn't. Yeah. Know, I live in L.A. I should know that, I guess, but I didn't know that. Yeah, no, it's still it's still still there and same building and seems to be have quite a scene around it. 
Um, it was like a, you know, like a literary arts center. It was a kind of like St. Mark's Poetry Project or something, you know. I had readings right. and workshops and things. And it went, and they went, they just asked me because I was, I was doing, cause you know, they had to, you had to typeset, you know, things back then. And I, and little Caesar was a one man operation kind of thing. So I had to like type it on their typesetting machine, lay it out and, you know, put the papers into that horrible, you know, whatever chemical and dry them and hang them up and dry them. And then, you know, the whole thing would build the book. So I was doing that at beyond Baroque cause they had a printing center and they just asked me if I would run the, if I would be interested in running the, the reading series. And I was always going to the reading series. I said, sure. So I just took over this Friday night reading series. And then I just started just, you know, having as many interesting writers, like my, my kind of crowd of, there was these kind of gang young writers that I was very close with and who I thought were great. Then also just trying to lure partially through little Caesar because little Caesar had become kind of like a cool thing. So, and through it that I was able to sort of like say, kind of connect the two a little bit and bring out writers that I really loved, like Joe Brainerd or Ron Padgett or. Oh, wow. Yeah. People I liked from New York to come read at the beyond Baroque, you know, I'd say like, Hey, you know, I only have $200 and they'd be like, "Eh, I'll I'll (laughs) I'll just take a trip out there and, you know, go see my family or something and I'll do a reading. They were all very nice about it. So, so then, yeah, but then for, I, I ran it for like three years and, um, and it was just kind of a hopping place and, and it, it was super exciting. And so, and then we were, and I was doing little Caesar and the beyond Baroque. And then most of my writer friends all had presses and pu- they were putting up magazines too. It was, it was pretty great. I have to ask if you have any memories about Joe Brainerd. He's one of my favorite writers. Yeah, he was great. Yeah, I, I, I published his last book with Little Caesar. I was so proud of that. I was so happy about that. Um, yeah, I, I knew him, when I, especially when I moved to New York in 1983. I, I knew Joe pretty well. We hung out a lot. And he was just, he's like, you know, enormously humble, shy to the point of weirdness person with a very bad stutter and, and just lovely. And at that point, he'd kind of given up and he'd quit quit making art and quit writing. So he was, I don't know what he was doing, but he kind of had stopped. And I have no idea. I don't know if anyone knows why he quit, but he, yeah, he was just an absolute dear, you know, just an absolute sweetheart, but you know, very, very odd, but very, 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 um, yeah, just generous and kind. And I don't know. Yeah. that That's yeah. the sense that you get from his work. I think, Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess the book that people always recommend that would probably be the one to start with would be I Remember, right? Right, right, right. And that is, there's a lot of generosity in that book, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, actually, he's, he's re- people only really know I Remember, but he's great all the time. And there's a book of his, I don't know, collected or selected writings, and that's actually terrific because he was much, he was as great as I Remember is. I mean, he he was really really good all the time and actually his visual art is quite charming too visual art's great i'm actually looking at a copy of um this old uh literary zine called unmuzzled ox oh yeah from, from new york and uh, it has yeah. it has it has some brainerd comics in it they're fantastic his nancy comics are so great yeah no he yeah i published a bunch of his comics on little caesar yeah yeah unmuzzled ox yeah that was like a kind of an influence on little caesar and muzzle ox yeah oh was it really i see it's, yeah. it's a mysterious thing to me i just found a copy at a bookstore in new york a long long time ago and grabbed it and it's this kind of um it's this yeah it's got like ed sanders and robert creeley right. and kathy acker it's got all these people in it yeah. but i don't know much about it beyond just this issue that i have yeah, well, it was. A, it, it, it came out, and it was. It was a little bit of an influence because, well, I like the writers in it, but also because it had like it had like images in it, and it had kind of a kind of like a, a lot of energy about it. So that was kind of a bit of a model too. It was. It wasn't like Little Caesar came out of the blue. I mean, there were these other magazines doing right doing stuff. That was one of them. 
So I'm um, just going back to Beyond Baroque for a second. Like, who were the who were the, like the local stars? Like when you were running it, who were kind of like the rock stars of the Beyond Baroque scene? Of the Beyond Baroque scene? Oh, I don't know if there were any rock stars. We were all really young. Oh no, I mean there were there were like famous writers that we got to, that we you know that we were you know that lived in L.A. that we had we we, we got brought in to read like you know Christopher Isherwood and people like that. Oh wow, yeah. But maybe maybe the question is better asked like. Um... There, who who were some of the people that were there that were kind of like major to it when you were doing it, but who have been kind of like forgotten by history now? Because like I just I just read that like that critical biography of you, and like there's just these passages where all these names get rattled off, and there are all these writers, yeah. a lot of whom I've never heard of, and like now I want to go and check all of them out. Well, I mean, they all, 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 most of them are still um, are still out there and 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 doing well. I mean, Amy Gerstler was like, you know, a, she was like my best friend. We kind of like started the whole scene together, and she's like, you know, won big awards and stuff as a poet, and she's great. And Jack Skelly was always really. He's just kind of he kind of disappeared for a long time, and he's he's now he's making a kind of comeback. Semiotex is going to publish a book of his, and and. That's um, cool. Yeah, he's just suddenly reemerged, and then there's Benjamin Weissman, and there's David Trinidad, who's a pretty well known poet now. Yeah, and then there's like a, there was this young punk poet named Ed Smith, and he died really young. He killed himself, but there was a big big book of his poems that were published. It was published like a year ago, two years ago, and he was great. And then Bob Flanagan, who became kind of famous for his performance, his masochistic performances. Yeah, yeah. And, and but he, they're going to publish his po- his poetry's been out of print forever, and they're going to publish his poetry. But um, yeah, I yes, mean, yeah, I, I know him for his performances, his masochism, right. uh, his masochistic performances. But I had no idea he was a poet until I started reading this critical bio. Yeah, what kind of a, what kind of a poet was he? Like, what kind of mode did he write in? Um, much not not like his performances. I mean, they're much. It's much more lyrical and more. It's gentler than that. I mean. Um, I think he did write some some stuff that was kind of you know kind of like uh, button pushing, but um, I mean he wrote a lot about his illness because you know he had cystic fibrosis and you know um, you know from when I met him he had it his whole life and so he wrote a lot about medical stuff because he was just always you know always like going to the doctor and trying to stay alive. Right. right. So I don't know. There's going to be a book coming out. I think they're working on it now, so you you can see. I'm going to find the Ed Smith book, too. I mean, that's a hard name to Google, I guess, but I, I can probably track it down. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the book, but um, it's edited by David Trinidad. So if you look, if you do Ed Smith, David Trinidad, you'll find it. Okay, cool. It's great. It's a really, really, really good book. Yeah. I'm wondering if I can ask you about crystal meth. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I know that you you had your you had your time with 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 Crystal, and I'm wondering, like, could you read when you were high on Crystal? Could I read? That's a good question. Um, I don't think I had any patience. I mean, it was when I was I mostly was when I was when I was in Amsterdam. That's when I was living in Amsterdam. Is when I got really into. They called it Pep over there. Not That's Crystal, great. Not, wow, yeah, I've never heard that before. Much more charming. Much yeah. more sweet than it's cute. <laughs> yeah, um, I think I must have read because I read a billion books while I was there, and I was starting to work on the George Miles cycle books while I was in Amsterdam. So, I so I must have read because yeah, I read like that's where I read all almost all the Nouveau Roman novels and got really excited by them. So 
I guess I right. did. And I wasn't always on crystal meth. It wasn't like I was on it 24 hours a day. I just was doing it, you know, once in a while. But, um, I, you know, I, so I guess I did. I don't have any memory of, of uh-huh. reading. I know I wrote a lot that was just complete garbage. You know, you just, I don't know if you've ever taken crystal meth, but you just get, you know, you just spew out whatever. And then, of course, it's yeah. all completely dreadful. Yeah, yeah. It's not even the kind of stuff that you can go back and edit down, really, I don't think. No, no, unfortunately not. <laughs> no. Do you think anybody's ever captured the feeling of being high on crystal in writing? Wow. Is that possible? Um, probably. I mean, I don't know what it would be. How, how would you How would you capture that? This extreme energy and... I don't know, because like, there's, there's a kind of psychosis. You get this kind of psychosis that's a very particular kind of psychosis. Yeah. Um, you know? Yeah. You'd so have to throw know. punctuation out the window, too, I think. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess you would. But, you know, I mean, like, with the people who do stuff like that, you know, like Gaetano Burroughs or something, that doesn't seem like crystal meth work. So I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what it would be. I'd be interesting to find out. Yeah, I guess Burroughs... You wrote a book called Speed. Yeah, he wrote a book called Speed, and I think, as I remember, it does it does kind of get it, but I don't I don't know. I really like your take on Burroughs. It seems like he's you know he's so hallowed to so many people that people are afraid yeah. to say that he did start to become his books weren't that good when he wasn't really writing them himself toward the end of his or the second yeah. half maybe of yeah. his career. Yeah. But is there is there a favorite Burroughs book for you? Oh, I guess probably The Wild Boys. Yeah. I mean, I like, I really like everything from Naked Lunch to the Wild Boys. I mean, that period, I'm, I love the, I love, you know, I love, um, you know, Ticket Exploded and No Express. That whole, you know, Soft Machine. I love that stuff. It's just after that, then I, then I lost interest. But, and I don't like the junkie in those early ones very much. They're too pulpy for me. But that period yeah. when he was doing the cut ups, and then I guess Wild Boys was kind of just post cut up, but it still feels kind of like that. I love that stuff. And is it? It's true that he was kind of. Uh, I mean, to be kind, let's say he was getting some help with writing later on, right? Is that is that really is that a fact? Um, is it a fact? Well, <laughs> um, I don't. I got in. I got. I got in like huge amount of trouble for for saying that. Um, uh, but um, I mean, how do I say it? Um, it's pretty sure that it, yes. I mean, I, I, I mean, yes, <laughs> Let's just say yes. but I mean, that, but that I'm not, but it may be that I now get hell come down on me again from people who, who try to say that it wasn't true, but let's just say that I knew people and I was, you know, I, I knew, I knew people who knew him very well and I kind yeah. of knew that was going on. So um, I heard that you guys kind of like shared a boyfriend at one point or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that is yeah. this too much? Am I going into no, untru- no, no, it's okay. fine. Um, the yeah, no, I had a boyfriend. Um, uh, I don't know if I should say his name or not, but anyway, I had a boyfriend, and he was having a thing with Burroughs, and he would fly out to Lawrence, Kansas, every once in a while, and um, spend like a week under a week with him. It, it was totally fine, it, it didn't bother me. I think it bothered yeah. um, the people who took care of Burroughs more than it bothered me, but it didn't bother me. You mentioned um, the George Miles cycle, yeah. and I, you know, I'm not going to ask you to um, to describe that for the millionth time. I'll put it in the introduction for people okay. who, who don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, it's a cycle of um, five, I, I guess, six now, right? No, I, this isn't part of the cycle. It doesn't qualify. So your your most recent book is I Wished, which is kind of yeah. like 
Is it a capstone to this? I mean, how does it relate to the rest of the George Miles cycle? See, I don't, here's the thing, right? I just wanted to write a book about George and I wanted to write a book that was really, really personal because I'd never written a book that was really, really personal and that used my real life in such a strong way and used my, like my real feelings in such a strong way. I'd always really been carefully used that stuff as material in a very distant kind of way before. So I wanted to do that. George was this person who had been, who had this massive, massive impact on me. Um, our friendship, he just had this huge impact on me. And so I thought if I'm going to write a book, I'm going to write about, if I'm going to go into this very deep stuff, I'm going to go to the thing that's the hardest, most difficult thing for me to think about, which is George, because it's a very difficult area right. for me. So right. that's why I wrote about him. And the reason the cycle is brought up is because I knew people knew he was in the cycle. And I, and then because I'm writing about everything, I'm talking about how, I, how I'm trying to memorialize him and how I'm trying to pay tribute to him and try to build monuments to him and all this stuff. I mean, that's what the book's about. So I mentioned the cycle in there because you know, because it's a kind of honest book. And then because that was, you know, that was this thing I tried to make for him, I made for him. But but that's it. I mean, otherwise, I don't think for me, it's like, you don't have to read the cycle or anything to read the book. I mean, you can decide that that George Miles cycle thing is, is just a part is just like a fiction like, right. So I don't think I so I understand why people connect them. And obviously, if you know, the cycle, but I, I don't feel like it's, I don't see it as being like a, a postscript of the cycle or anything like that. Okay. I mean, it, it, I found it very moving in a way that the cycle books didn't, you know, emotionally impact me. So, but something I was wondering is, do you think, is there, is there, I, I think the George Miles cycle is pretty unprecedented, but is there, are there ancestors in doing that and kind of like this, this, this massive, almost career spanning obsession that drives so much work? Um, I thought a little bit about Odette from Proust, but that's not quite the same. Yeah, no, there's there there are you know there's you know, Dante Dante had what's her name and um, there's someone that I can't remember the name of that Rob Grier had as a kind of muse for his books and but uh, yeah I don't know I mean there, there's precedence for like experimental tetralogies and trilogies and whatever quintologies and stuff so like but, like like what oh I don't know like the Burroughs books for instance I mean we just talked about Burroughs I mean the Naked right. Lunch through to get exploded or like a, or like a tetralogy. And um, you just mentioned Rob Grier and, um, and you mentioned the nouveau Roman writers a, a few minutes ago. Yeah. I, I read somewhere, maybe it was the critical biography. I read somewhere that they were like the quote, the last piece of the puzzle for you in terms of your influences. I was, yeah. Cause I was in Amsterdam and I was trying to write, I want, I, and I was trying to write, I want, I went over there partly, well, I went there for love, but I also went there to, because I wanted to get away so I could really write the cycle. Because I've been I've been talking about writing the cycle for like four or five years at that point. I mean, and the, I mean, I'd been talking about it since I was fifteen, but I had this plan in mind, you know, for 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 a few years. So, so, and then I was just I was just trying to figure out how to um, do it, and I did. I'd done a lot of research with like real life research to things I that I personally am not cannot do. Like I, you know, I. Before I went to Amsterdam, I like would pick up prostitutes and things, and figure you try to see what object, you know, objective sex, really objectified sex is like. And when I was yeah. in Amsterdam, there was a lot of stuff going on that was quite crazy at that point. So I was investigating that stuff, but I couldn't. But for the prose, it was just, for some reason I couldn't quite get what I wanted to do the writing. And then, um, then I was in this. There was this used English language bookstore in Amsterdam where somebody had like gotten rid of like. Um, 
like almost all of the new Roman novels in English. And I had read a little bit of Rogrier and Marguerite Duras stuff when I was younger, but I basically bought all of them and just read all of them. And for some reason that kind of, the kind of terseness of the writing that they all kind of shared and, yeah. And, and then, you know, how much they did with it and how it's so much about language and structure. And there's this great book by, there was this great book by Rob Grier called uh, for the new novel that I read at that time. It was just like, okay, now I think I, now I think I get it. It was just like the final thing I needed something and I needed to see something in, in written form, like a novel or literature that, that was, had something to give me, you know, cause I couldn't get everything from psycho candy or whatever else. Right. And if for whatever reason, it's just like, okay, I can do this. It was like, that was it. It's just like the, I, the, I understood how I could find the voice, get nailed down the voice that I really wanted. So maybe that goes back to that question of like finding, finding your style. Um, yeah. 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 I, I see, I have trouble. Like I'm thinking of like, yeah, Rob Grier and, and Duras and Natalie Sorot. I have trouble like, Kind of describing the commonality in, in among the nouveau roman writers. Do you do you have a way of kind of summing that up? Yeah, I should because I read them so much. And I really there's that. I mean, that book for the new novel is really good. Not that you know, if readers want to spend the time, it's a very short book. But that he kind of wrote the Bible of it or the manifesto of the new novel. It's like objectivist, and it's about it's against you know it's against like conventions and it's against it's against plot and story being the dominating force. It's against psychology. You know, it's against a lot of things that are fundamental to the, to like the, at least the American kind of idea with a novel, you know? Yeah. And it's so, um, but yeah, it's really about, really a lot about objectivity. So being very, it's like objective writing or something. It's hard for me to. Yeah. yeah it, it's, it's there. It's a slippery kind of category. I think there's a lot mm-hmm. of, a lot of the writers in it kind of changed their style a lot from book to book, too. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. Am I allowed to say that youth has been a big theme of your work? Well, it's kind of obvious. <laughs> right, okay. I'm just making sure. I never like to assume things like that, you know. Yeah. Um, and also youth, like, contrasted with adulthood, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I kind of, like, start to wonder, like, how old do you feel inside? I don't know. I never I never really think about it. I, um, It's really shocking to me when I look in the mirror. Let's just put it that way. I'm like, Jesus Christ, well, how did that happen? Because right. I, I don't really feel any different than I did, you know, whatever, when I was years and years and years and years ago. I don't feel any different. I really don't. And, um, so I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't have like a particular age cause I don't know. I don't, I don't think of myself as being a particular age, but I just don't think I'm any different. I mean, I still am like really excited by like new music and new books and new movies and stuff. I'm still kind of totally excited, like looking for innovation and stuff. And I still, I mean, I don't think I've changed that much, you know what I mean? And most yeah. of my, most of my friends are, I've always been sort of like, I've always had like younger friends. Most of my friends are much younger than me and, and I don't, I don't know why that is. It's not like I seek out young people to be friends with. It's just, I get along better with them. It's like when the, when there's people my age, I mean, if they're artists, you know, I mean, my friends who are my age are like, they're all like artists. So they're just, you know, cause artists never get old. The artists just they remain right. children, you know, right. It's in some ways or other. So all of us are just kind of the same. 
all of us are kind of like these weird stunted whatever kids or adults or whatever but um um so i don't know i certainly don't think about being i don't feel old you know i mean sometimes you know my back or something makes me think i'm old but right yeah no totally i mean i feel like a 46 year old teenager half the time (laughs) right yeah i mean yeah i mean i I don't feel that different from that except that i feel a lot calmer it's like i don't feel i feel like less stressed out and more and less less because I, you know, I kind of figured like, okay, you know, I mean, because you know, you go through stuff and you learn stuff, and you're like, okay, this isn't the end of the world, you know, and it's, this, the Trump era is not the end of the world. It's just a, right. one of the most horrible phase, you know, we've ever lived through. But it's not the end <laughs> of the world. It's like this is going to pass, and the far right is going to pass, and you know, it's like because it will, you know, you know it will, so you don't get as stressed out about stuff. Yeah, because you've seen it happen a couple times. Like we, yeah, we yeah. lived through the Reagan era. We lived through, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah I, I, I'm old enough to have lived through the, you know, the nuclear scare and all that stuff. That was intense, you know. That reminds me. Is it true that your dad was friends with Richard Nixon? Yeah. My brother's named after Richard Nixon. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, my father was, uh, yeah, they were really good friends and um, had a falling out at a certain point. But, yeah, I mean, my father wanted to be president of the United States. I mean, he was all connected up with uh, that kind of, that scene. I mean, he knew all those guys, Haldeman and Ehrlichman and all those guys. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so, but then he, but then he, he and Nixon had a big falling out, I think around the time Nixon became governor and cause my father became a Democrat. He went to the left. He took like, oh. he smoked a lot of pot and he went to this place called Esalen Institute, which was this kind of hippie, <laughs> hippie place yeah. in Big Sur. Yeah. And he kind of had this awakening and he became this kind of Democrat leftist guy. And so he, they, um, yeah, my father has a story he used to tell me and he's dead now. My father's telling me the story like, he was having dinner with Richard Nixon and, and, and they were having this kind of theoretical conversation about like, if you, let's say a country is a family and Nixon and, and, and my father said, the way you take over the family is, is you kill the father and then you take over the family. And Nixon said, no, the, the only way you can do it is to kill every single person in the family. And my father was Jesus. outraged. So outraged. He picked up his food, his plate of food and threw it on Nixon and stormed out. I think that was the last <laughs> time we ever saw each other. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you kill the family, there's no family left to take over. Yeah, I guess that was Nixon's uh, mode mode there. So, uh-uh. yeah. Um, what is it like to have a critical biography written of you? Did, did you read it? <laughs> oh, it's really strange. Um, yeah, yeah, I did read it, of course. Um, uh, you know, it's it's. I mean, you know, flattering as hell. I mean, it's like you know, I mean, it's obviously it's super, super, super great that someone wanted to write a. Critical biography, me. Um, you know, it's so it's so full of references and associations. Do you feel like they are they all right? Did, did everything ring true to you? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean some of it. I mean most of it. Most of it's pretty good. I mean there are things. You know, I mean it's like I don't. I don't. I have read some critical biographies, but it's like you know, it's like you become the material for their their kind of like their argument or their thing, right? Yeah. So so it, the book was like you know like. Uh, you know, I'm an anarchist and he wanted to make this point of like my anarchism being important, which is all very true. And, and then he had this, I don't know, he had this big thing about punk or something and he kept making punk so important. And yeah, he, he made punk much more important than it was. And, um, and so there are things like that where I'm just like, well, you know, where he, he, he kind of like, it's not like he did it in a bad way or evil way or something, but he just, he got off on these tangents and they made sense to him, but they actually weren't, necessarily accurate you know like like where he says like you know that frank o'hara was like a god to me frank o'hara was not a god to me he no said, he wasn't you know, okay 
and that um, you know that I found anarchism because I read Paul Goodman because Frank O'Hara like I I read like four or five pages of Paul Goodman when I, in like 1980 and thought it was boring. So uh-huh. it's like you know what I mean. So it's, there's things like that, but it doesn't really matter ultimately. But yeah, I mean, if you get if you get into like the nitty gritty, there are some things in there. I'm like, yeah, you know, that isn't really true. But I mean, I like the book. I mean, it's it, you know, he says a lot of really good things, and and, and I'm I'm grateful that he paid attention to like my gift fiction and my in the films and all that stuff. That was cool. I feel like critical biography can kind of be is like another way to say subjective biography. Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, his. Dearman's whole thing is like, this is not the definitive thing. This is just my take on you. And that's why, you know, it's like, I'm, you know, it's cool. I mean, I'm happy about it. Um, you, you mentioned being an anarchist. Like, how does that show up in your daily life or in your, in, in your practices? Well, it's a, because, because, you know, it's completely impractical to think that anarchism could ever become like a system that the world would adhere to or live by. It's just impossible. We're, it's way, we're way beyond that. You can't just, you know. You can't, you can't, it's just, it's, it would never happen. So I don't, I'm not someone who like thinks, you know, we should, you know, we should physically dismantle the governments and all this kind of stuff. Cause I think it's, I think it's just ridiculous. So it's like a philosophy. So it's basically just like, it's just like a way to live or something. It's like make, you know, it's just like, and it's all really simple. You know, it's like basic, like power corrupts and, you know, when you get power, disperse it and, and and that kind of stuff. It's, it, it comes down to really simple things and you just basically live your you just live that way or something like I'm against generalizations, you know, that's part of anarch- my anarchism too. It's like, I don't believe, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't judge. So when people say like, you know, whatever, you know, the Republicans are like this or the fans of blood Zeppelin are like this or whatever they're going to say, or, you know, people who listen to, you know, who like machine gun Kelly are like this. It's doesn't, it doesn't, it's just, you know, I just, I just turn off because it's not, it's just, it's it's nonsense and people do that all the time generalizations are like especially these days it's like because everybody's so lazy they're just like generalizing like crazy like on social media and stuff about everything so it's it's just like things like that it's it's actually not complicated it's not like i have to you know like look up in my rule book about what i need to do it's just i just it's just it's just really simple basic things like that where i try to remember you know is there is there is there writing on anarchism that you would recommend somebody read if they want to kind of get started thinking about it the thing about anarchism is, is, is that every single anarchist is a different anarchist. And the right. anarchism, anarchism is, is, a, is entirely different depending on the person because it's, it's all like, it's, to me at least, anarchism is like, you, who are you? You know, what do you do? What is your power? What is your strengths? What is your weaknesses? And then how do you collaborate with everyone in a way that will, you know, that will show respect to them and that will, you know, um, you know, will, you know, not, not overly empower you and, so it's so I I mean there are I mean you know Emma Goldman's really good there are some really good writings yeah. on you know there's some good writing on anarchism but ultimately you have to you basically make it up yourself you just I when I found out about anarchism it was just it was sort of like I was already doing it I just didn't know how to structure it so I was like right. oh this this totally is me you know so so I just it just gave me a name for it really you mentioned um, things being like a like a crazy in Amsterdam yeah when you were living there like what do you mean. Oh, crazy, uh, crazy things happening. Oh, no, it's just like, you know, it was like this, it was just like this time, you know, it was like the early 80s and AIDS was happening, but it wasn't happening as much. It wasn't being being seen in Europe or at least in Amsterdam, it taken as seriously as it was in the United States, because in New York, my friends were dying and it's all the t- starting to die all the time. And so there was still a lot of hedonism going on. Um, and there was a lot of drugs. I mean, you know, I mean, this obviously mm. there's the there was the legal pot and legal hash stuff and everything, but there was like a lot of speed, a lot of heroin, 
a lot of stuff like that. And then, you know, there was a lot of perversion. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, like serious S&M clubs. There was like... What is it about Amsterdam? I guess it's just maybe cumulative that like one thing happens there. So other things start to happen there. But I wonder about what is it about that city that makes it so decadent and hedonistic? Well, you know, at the time of the Dutch were all about like tolerance, right? I mean, you know, the, the, it's funny because the Dutch, the Dutch, the Dutch government is, is has it become much more conservative and much more right wing now. And that's actually when you were there, there was this kind of like, well, we must tolerate everything, we must tolerate everything, and be understanding about everything. And that was kind of the attitude. But they hated it. I mean, that's I'm generalizing wildly, but you had this sense of like great hostility towards these things that they were tolerating. So, so it was really complicated. But at the time, it was just like you know, it was just like. The, in Europe, it was like the the wild city. It was the city where you wanted because no place else had drugs, legal drugs, you know. Right. And the, and the red light district, and there were there were like you know there were there were houses of prostitution everywhere. There were all these like male prostitution houses, these boy brothels. There were I used to go and spend hang out there all the time. They were just like everywhere. I mean, it was just it was a city about hedonism, you know. What the brothels? You could just hang out in them, or were you were you a customer? No, you didn't have to be a customer. And you just like, I just like, I always like going to hustler bars because the, I like how the dynamic is so organized. So it's like, cause I don't like, I don't drink really. And I don't really like kind of cruising and all that nonsense. So yeah. if you go to, if you go to a hustler bar and you're not a hustler, not a John, they don't care you just sit there and you just like, they're just like, okay, I, I don't, you know, they don't, they don't pay attention to you because you're not, you're not either sought after or seeking someone. So I like going them because it was just kind of relaxing. And also it was interesting to watch the machinations go on between those people, but you could just go to them and have a drink. I mean, it was just basically, there was like a bar. And then, you know, if you wanted someone from the bar, you'd go and take them up into a room upstairs, you know? Okay. Thank you, Dennis, for your time and generosity. Um, a couple of notes here. We talked about the book Hog, H-O-G-G, by Samuel Delaney, uh, which Dennis himself says is very extreme. So be warned if you decide to pick it up. It is very extreme and not for everyone. I can't say I enjoyed it, but I also couldn't stop reading it. I think in the end, I do like it, but it's a tough one. Uh, your mileage may vary. I feel like we also glossed over the Nouveau Roman writers pretty quickly, so if you want to check them out, I would really recommend starting with Natalie Sarot's book, Tropisms. That's T-R-O-P-I-S-M-S. Although Alain Robegrier is probably the most famous one of the Nouveau Roman writers, and he's pretty great too. This episode was recorded by me at 8 in the morning in Los Angeles while Dennis was in Paris, France. It was post-produced and edited by Justin Geller and facilitated by Laris Kreslins. And the music is Bach, arranged and performed by Cyrus Garamani. You can find more Apology stuff, including the magazine and sometimes some merch, at apologymagazine, all one word, dot com. Thanks a lot. Talk to you next time.